0: Good morning to each of you. If you would please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Last week, being the last Lord's Day of the year, um, I took up a topic that I thought, or we thought I should say as leaders, that's something that's very, very important, and that is unity in our church. And uh, I mentioned to you that I think that we have excelled in that, and But we need to be reinforced of the importance of that. And today, we're going to move to something that kind of gets down where the rubber meets the road. It's practical ways to maintain unity. And, you know, as Paul continues through Ephesians 4, he's giving ethical exhortations of how we ought to live as the people of God. By way of review, chapters 1 through 3 is the indicative, it sets forth our wealth of who we are in Christ, who we are positionally, more, of more value than all the diamonds in the world. But then at four one and the rest of the book, is the imperative. How then should we live in light of our position in Christ? So Paul, towards the end of Ephesians 4, addresses such thing as, as put off falsehood, but speak truth. Let him who steals, steal no more, but work hard with his hands so he can share with him who has need. To guard our tongues, as the psalmist says, Paul puts it to uh, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for edification. Literally, the building up, the encouraging and not tearing down. And so you can see that Paul's going through this put off, put on, put off, put on, and actually, up in 420, he actually, or 22, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self and the likeness of God. And so that is a theme that Paul is picking up on. And so For our text, we're going to look at just the last few verses of this chapter, verses 30 to 32. And so, let's go ahead and read the text. I'll probably, I'll just read from verse 29 to 32. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word, as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would search our hearts, that you would search our minds, Lord, that that even as it is so easy just to think lightly of sin, Lord, that we would understand that that there is a grieving of the Spirit when we sin, that, 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 that we need to be sensitive to our sin so that we can repent of it and seek forgiveness and be made right with you and the offending party. Lord, we confess that we can be weak at times, that that we can be burdened down by these things. And so, Lord, would you strengthen us today as we hear your word, as we hear the practical exhortations of of to be motivated to live out the gospel in a way that glorifies you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul here, again, I'm not taking up verse 29, but the idea of, of let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Instead, he says, speak words that build up, that edify, And to the degree that we fill our lives with the truths of the gospel, that we really believe these things, that is going to be our goal with the brethren who we love. We don't want to tear them down. We don't want to tear down those in our family. We want to see people built up and encouraged so that they might blossom. As one man says, Ken Sandy in the Peacemaker materials, that that it's breathing grace. And so that's what we're to do is breathe grace on one another. Well, as we consider this topic of grieving the spirit and bitterness, which is probably pastorally one of the primary sins that I've had to deal with in counseling is bitterness. Um, I want to open up with an analogy about Fanny Crosby. Many of you know that she's written 8,000 hymns. Many of them are included in our hymnal that we've sung and The story goes something like this. When she was little, about five or six weeks old, she developed an eye infection, and her parents took her to a a physician, kind of a local physician that maybe didn't have the paper on the wall. Of course, this is a long time ago, but but he treated her with the wrong potion, and it was actually him that made her blind. Now, you can imagine, as you would grow and hear that story, and the temptation to bitterness that I can't see because of what this man did to me, this quack or whatever you want to refer to him as. But instead with her, it was the complete opposite. She had such a love for Christ, such a longing for heaven that she could completely forgive him. She said this, if I could meet him now, I would say thank you over and over for making me blind. She goes on to say that she considered it a gift that God Helped her to write these hymns because she was blind. And then you think of 701 in our hymnal. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. No language, no rapture can tell. I know that the light of his presence with me doth continually dwell. Note, as you, if you sing her hymns, note the references to light and to the sun and all of that. And, and of course, she can't see, but she knows something of that light. As Paul is giving these exhortations, he is urging Christian behavior in us. So let's begin first with verse 30. And uh, we're going to look at the first half of this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do you grieve the Spirit of God? Ask yourself that question. In this last week, have you thought... I just I believe that I grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, that I can grieve God himself. You know, it's it's kind of hard to wrap our mind around, but but let's consider who the Holy Spirit is. Of course, he's the, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God being his first name. He is the one that is said to be the comforter, the one that dwells on the inside of us. And the Holy Spirit, by the way, is a person, not a force. You can't grieve a force, but you can grieve a person. It is the Holy Spirit, of course, that effectually calls us in time upon hearing the gospel, that breathes life into us so that we come alive to spiritual life. It is the Spirit, the Bible says, that has feelings, that He searches all things, He speaks in Acts 13 he testifies he convicts the world of sin he guides and ultimately his goal is to what glorify Christ the second person of the holy trinity John 16:14 he will glorify me Jesus says of the spirit John 16:13 but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you in all truth Paul makes clear that apart from the holy spirit you cannot be saved he is the one that imparts life, and He is the one that sustains life. He is the one, to put it another way, that causes us to persevere to the end. And so, having painted that picture, the think of grieving the Holy Spirit should affect you if you are genuinely in Christ. You grieve the Spirit every time you sin. Every time. Every time you sin. And, and, and the structure here in the original is actually there shouldn't be a period at the end of 29. It just flows right into verse 30. Uh, what He says there so that it, you can give grace to those who hear as far as how to speak and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So there's a connection here that oftentimes even by our words and our language that we can grieve the Spirit of God. Context here is this rotten speech and lies and anger and all of this that grieves the spirit. And so this phrase, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, sort of is central to what has gone before that I've reviewed quickly and then what is coming ahead. But it is central. And in other words, it should be the motivation, a, yay, powerful motivation to hate sin and to put sin off. The word grieve here is a word that we've looked at recently as we ended Mark. It's the word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember we considered that six, seven weeks ago when it says that he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. The word means to cause severe mental distress and emotional distress to be insulted. Every time we pollute our minds, we are grieving the Spirit. Now, turn back to Isaiah 63 here. You just had, you just heard it read for you in our Old Testament scripture reading, and I'm going to go through this very fast. But where in the world does Paul get this analogy of grieving the Holy Spirit? They just pull it out of the thin air? Now, of course, there's a picture of this, very clear picture, in the Old Testament. Verses 1 through 6 display messianic judgment and his victory as the anointed conqueror over all things. Then the prophet shifts and begins to focus on God's past goodness to his people. In verse 9, it it, it says that it's the presence of God himself which saved his people in the wilderness. In fact, let's just read verses 9 to 11 again. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them, and his love and his mercy he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, where, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? So you see this language that is used here. It's a a looking back to the time of the Exodus. And what is said here is that the Holy Spirit was in the midst of them, but as God's people would rebel and become stubborn and make idols and golden calves, that that grieved the Spirit of God. And that's where Paul is drawing this from. So what's the connection? Is he wanting us to look back only to Exodus? No. Just as that covenant people of God in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, rebelled and grieved the Spirit of God, so too for us in the new covenant, the new covenant community who have been redeemed by something far greater than rescued out of the land of Egypt, of course that's a picture, we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have been released and made free we are the Holy Temple where God dwells. So Paul is saying, "Do not grieve. The Holy Spirit did, as the Holy Spirit just as Israel did on the Exodus." Of course, in the context here, John MacArthur notes, "The Holy Spirit is sorrowful when Christians lie, when, when stealing, instead of sharing, when speaking rotten words, instead of building up the body." Of Christ, And we know that grieving the Spirit can lead to what? Quenching the Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, that, that quenching in, in which your joy is sapped, in which you become melancholy because you can't see rightly. Listen to Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, as he comments on what this is. To grieve him is to wound him, he says is to wound him on whom our salvation depends. Though he will not finally withdraw from those in whom he dwells, yet when grieved, he withholds his manifestations of his presence. So you see what he's saying? That that he'll he'll never leave us or forsake us if we're truly in Christ. But when we sin, we grievously sin, we haven't repented, it is as though the Lord's presence begins to become far away. The Puritans wrote on this extensively, a a doctrine called desertion, because of our own sin, when the manifestation of God's closeness is sort of removed. And he does that, of course, for what purpose? To bring us back, (laughs) to lead us to repentance so that we would be broken before him. Now again, I want to make very clear here that that this is not saying that he would finally permanently leave us. We hold to the perseverance of the saints. Another commentator said this, Grieve is a love word. And think about this. You don't grieve people who don't love you. He is grieved because we are the objects of the love of the triune God. Chapter 1, in love, having been predestined from before the foundation of the world. God, who elected us, who... The God, the Son who redeemed us, the triune God who brought us into this knowledge of this redemption and and regenerated us, came to dwell in us by the Spirit. Well, what's the motive, Paul? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He goes on in verse 30. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Your motive is that you have been sealed by the same Holy Spirit. In other words, you've been set apart, you've been marked, you've been certified. You, you've been, there's a declared ownership on you as God's child, and that happens through the Holy Spirit. The word here for sealed, is a, it's, a, it's a passive verb, which means that it's something that we don't do. We can't seal ourselves, wrap ourselves up in tape, okay, I'm sealed. No, it's something that God has done. God has saved you. God has sealed you. The definition goes like this. To mark with the seal as a means of identification, denoting ownership. It has the idea of authenticity, his stamp of divine approval. Isn't that beautiful? Do you see how that is a motive that I have been, I am certified as God's child. I've been sealed by the Spirit. Elsewhere, the Spirit's been given as a pledge of my inheritance that I will receive in glory why would I want to sin and grieve against that, against that same Holy Spirit? It's folly. But that's the way sin is, isn't it? It's deceptive. It can trick us. We can be tricked by it. We can be enticed by it. And of course, this is a statement of fact. It's an absolute certainty. If you are in Christ, you are sealed forever. As I mentioned in chapter 1, it's mentioned as a pledge of our inheritance. It's like an engagement ring. When a man wants to marry a young woman and promises to marry through an engagement ring, that ring is there, and it's a promise that that wedding will take place. Right, Ezra? (laughs) We have a wedding coming up this week, later this week. Praise the Lord. So a seal actually had many uses in the first century, and it would communicate... Some rich truths. Of course, animals and slaves were, were branded. They were sort of sealed to mark the ownership of the owner. Also, the, the signet ring that would go into wax to seal an envelope, right? So that would c- communicate what? Authenticity. This is the real deal. And also, the flip side of that, if that seal's broken, that it's untrustworthy what's inside, right? Like when you receive a letter in the mail, and it's, you know, it's been open or it wasn't sealed or something, you kind of, hmm, right away there's some, you should have some suspicion, at least. In the courtroom of this state, you see the great seal of the state of California. And of course, God gives this seal of the Holy Spirit to denote his ownership and protection. A seal is also used for security. Remember, we just looked at the resurrection passages, there's a seal put around the tomb, according to Matthew. Pilate had a seal put around the tomb, which, of course, did not keep Jesus in the tomb. But notice what Paul does here. Or, I'm sorry, what he does not do. He does not threaten this. And I want to make this really clear, because you have to have a proper understanding of the gospel and how you are accepted before God, okay? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God or you may not be elect. Does he say that? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, or you may lose your salvation. Does he say that? Absolutely not. And so Paul's powerful motivation is one of love, one of, of, of understanding all that we have been forgiven, this mountain of debt called our sin. And it's a motivator to want to please the Lord in all things. To consider that... This Holy Spirit is the one that is the comforter. The one that leads us in all truth. The one that guides us. The the one that brings remembrance. Those scriptures that you stored in your heart and in your mind at the right time. The Holy Spirit is very, very active inside of you, Christian. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And finally, He is the guarantee of our eternal salvation. He is the one that enables us to persevere to the end by His grace. So the motive is is to hate sin because God hates sin. To hate sin because it grieves the Spirit in some fashion, in some mysterious way, and I don't pretend to understand all of the nuances of that and what that means for the third person of the Godhead to somehow be grieved, but the text is very clear, the meaning is very clear, and a motivation here is even clearer by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And speaking of that great day of redemption, he's already mentioned it earlier in the letter, but this this just communicates richness. This day of redemption refers to the final day of salvation and judgment. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of, of our body. <clears throat> One more qualification. The command here is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you don't grieve the Spirit, you're earning more brownie points so that you'll have a higher place in heaven. That's, that's not what's being communicated here either. But what's being communicated is something that's very clear to men and women who are honest about their sin, who struggle with sin, hate their sin and who fight vehemently against their sin. Taking heaven by force, the Puritans used to call it. If you see those evidence and evidences in your life, be encouraged. That's indication of true spiritual life. Now if you can just wink at sin and it's no big deal, you should be concerned. <laughs> You've got a, a such a low view of sin that you don't understand what it was that held christ to the cross it was the sins of all of god's people redemption of course is this term that just communicates such richness to the first century roman reader because slaves were bought and sold there was upwards of 3 million slaves and they were bought and sold all the time and so that would naturally be you know, this powerful imagery would be communicated A slave could be bought or it could be set free. And so we too who were formerly held captive by Satan to do his will have been set free. And what was the cost of that? The precious blood of Christ. As he says in chapter 1, you have been redeemed by his blood. Sinless blood. Pure blood. The blood of the Lamb shed for us from before the foundation of the world. What a glorious ransom price that has been paid for us to be redeemed. And brethren, this is, of course, a purifying hope for us. This this is what strengthens our faith because we know it's real. That I will someday see my Savior face to face. Do you long for that? I hope you do. If you don't, there's something wrong with that relationship. It's like when a couple separated due to deployment or due to missionary work, and they're reunited after a year of being apart. And well, I can wait another year. No, if that's if that's the coldness up there, there's a problem. No, of course we want to see our Savior's face. First John three and verse two, beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Well, we don't want to grieve the Spirit because we've been sealed by that same Spirit. But let's move on to verse 31. And you might think of this as a put off and a put on. Verse 31 are things we need to put off. Verse 32 are things we need to put on, to use that analogy, okay? And, and before I even reread the verse, there's a progression, like most sins have a progression. See that in Hebrews 11 with Moses, but there's a progression in these sins. Listen to it again. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You need to beware of this deceptive progression of sin. And when he says to be put away, it literally means to to take away or to remove or to seize control of, okay? So you you, you catch that one definition. So it's to move it away, pull it away, take it away, or get control of it. It's the same word that's used when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's what we're to do with these things. We're to remove these thoughts, in actions which are sinful. And the first is this, bitterness. Bitterness. Some of you may know the term by resentment. I like the idea of bitterness. It communicates something of the bitterness of bitterness to me. You kids, if you've ever made homemade lemonade, or you adults, you know, you've squeezing all the lemons, and you say, ah, it looks like about enough sugar, and you, you taste it bitter and sour, and obviously it needs a lot more sugar. That's that's what I think of with bitterness. It's something that is unpleasant. This is something that you can't hide in the corner and recesses of your heart. It's something that will eat you up from the inside out. And so be very, very careful. Beware of nursing a grudge against someone. Something that you just every now and again just nurse it just to keep it alive and then you tuck it back down on the corner of your heart and then Later on, something might happen, you'll pull that back up and you'll nurse it some more. Uh, A smoldering resentment, it will affect your behavior, not only to that person or persons, but to all who you interact with. as I look out, I can't see which one of you is struggling with bitterness right now. I know most of you, and I know some of you do have that temptation to, but... There's not like it's a big bee that's just blinking on your head right now. Yep, today I'm really bitter. It's blinking fast, you know, or something like that. It's a sin that is on the inside. And we can cover that up. We can sort of hide that. And that's what makes it so pleasant to those that struggle with this because I can go when I'm feeling sorry for myself and I can nurse that bitterness and seek to justify being bitter towards someone. Paul says, take it away. Get rid of it, just like this net that's blown around up here. One of the Scottish commentators uh, he says this. It's a figurative term denoting, and listen to this. Uh, it, all of us, most of us have struggled with bitterness at one time or another. Listen to this definition. A figurative term denoting that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity." that inclines him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things that makes him sour, crabby, and repulsive in his demeanor. Isn't that a good definition? Furthermore, people who are bitter usually refuse reconciliation, at least initially, because they're too busy justifying their bitterness, (laughs) right? They, you know, what do you mean reconciliation? What do you mean I'm sinning? And that's contrary to... The dynamic of the body of Christ. We need to keep short accounts with one another, brethren. And if, if something's, you know, so much of the time, especially in the context of the local church, it's, it's things that are perceived to be a certain way that aren't even that way that the person will begin to nurse and, and you know, you know and then suddenly there's this root of bitterness to deal with. When a, a brother or a sister offends you in some way, you can go to them, and I don't know if you, you know, can I talk to you? I don't know if you meant to do this, or did you notice this, or did you intend to do this or that? And, and well, of course not. Or, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, they did. Well, you know, that offended me, and you'd work that out. But, but that's how we deal with things biblically. It's not just sweeping it under the rug, or now I'm going to think a certain way, uh, you know, towards that person. I mean, you know, again, look at Fanny Crosby, completely free from bitterness, so free that she could pen thousands of hymns that glorify Christ. Well, the second thing he lists is wrath. You might think, wait a minute, that's that's something God does, right? That's, that's you know, wrath. But no, we can be given to that. The NIV has rage. You've heard of road rage. Right, Rob? Uh, and, you know, th- those kinds of things. Like, we see road rage, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And so ventilating. It's like a ventilation. It's a passionate rage. And and, and you say, well, but I've got a short temper. Or, I'm Italian. I can't help it, you know. And uh, no, you can't help it. You've got the Holy Spirit. Maybe a mom who's dealing with three children running around and one just got bubble gum in the baby's hair and And you're you're raising your voice, and I've had enough, and no more PBS, and whatever, and then the doorbell rings, and suddenly you're so pleasant. Hello. And so, you know what that communicates? You can have self-control in those times, right? I mean, you can get it together. It's just that you're venting, you're given to what the Bible says is rage, okay? Now, the second thing, or the next thing he brings up is anger, and they're related See, wrath has the idea of being short tempered and like sorta of like if you're starting a fire and you got a bunch of newspaper and you light it, you know, in our fireplace, it just goes you know for about a minute or two and then it's like gone, right? Hopefully the wood started by then. Anger, on the other hand, is a deep seated, long lived disposition. It's a long lasting, slow burning anger, as one man put it, and it refuses to be pacified. And so this is why Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount that if you're angry with your brother, what? it's the same as murdering him. And so there's a difference here. Wrath could just be these explosions, quick explosions that disappear. Anger is this deep-seated thing that's kind of more like a bitterness thing that's there. It's a settled and uh, sullen hostility. So bitterness, wrath, anger... It, and you might say, wait a minute, is Paul addressing the Roman world? Is he, is he, is he addressing the church? <laughs> like, you know, so far we're looking at these things, and it's like, well, this is unbecoming of a Christian, right? But the reality is, is that we are weak, and that we can fall into these things. And so we need to be real about that, okay? So he goes on, clamor. Clamor, the, the a New English translation has quarreling. The Greek word is croquet, croquet, like a crow, you know, and so you you can see it's it's this verbal croaking, you know, and then you picture two people with a heated verbal exchange, and and that's the word that's used, quarreling. It's uh, been called a cry of strife, violent outburst, croak like a raven, raising your voice in a quarrel, sometimes even screaming. What a grievous thing that is. If that happens in your home, what a horrible testimony to your children. If that happens between you and one of your children, what a horrible testimony that is to those around you. We need self-control. We need to deal with things calmly after prayer and regrouping. But He goes on to say, and this is what I mean by this progression, see, that this bitterness, wrath kind of explodes, this anger, clamor, times of clamor. But then slander is what he says. It's, it's, it's blasphema, which means to speak harm. It's usually this word is blaspheming God, right? Not you, over 50% of the time, but it's also used of one to another. Psalmist says in Psalm 50, you sit and you speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. It's the idea of speaking evil of someone. It's closely related to gossip, of which the Proverbs speak very much about. And so because of, usually, people don't slander and gossip just out of the blue, because of these other sins that have kind of been there to fester, it can lead to that type of an expression. And so you have husband and wife, they've had a great weekend together, nobody's had to work, they've gone to church, but Sunday night the clothes aren't iron for the husband, and he's got a very important meeting at 7 a.m., and, and, or whatever, there's, there's a conflict that goes on, and this isn't a very mature Christian couple, this illustration, so he goes to work, and, uh, of course, um, she gets to have coffee at 10 o'clock with a girlfriend, and, you know, and then, of course, well, how's, how are things, how was your weekend, well, it was great up until, you know, da-da-da, and then, The wife might be tempted to talk about the husband, and likewise the husband about his wife, and those types of things. Uh, But it's more than that. It's in the context of the church, in the context of co-workers, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, where's Bill? Well, you know, he's doing nothing except for getting promoted while we're working so hard over here or whatever. You know, it's that kind of mentality. Christians should know better. And, by the way, even in the context of the church, I have a news flash for you. You're going to be sinned against. You, you join this church, you're a member of this church, you're going to be sinned against at some point in time, because you can't put this many sinners together and not have an offense happen. It's going to happen, so be ready for that, and you have two choices when that happens. Leave the church, or tell everybody about it? No, not at all. <laughs> Overlook it in love, 1 Peter 4, eight, or go to that let me repeat that. Go to who? My friend? My peers? That person? And begin to work that out. And then if you need help, you come to the elders. You bring in a, another counselor. But biblically, that's what you do. Leaving the church was a crude joke, and that should never be on the table. But You would be surprised how common that is. There's an offense. I don't like these people. I'm, I'm leaving, rather than working things out biblically. And then, of course, last, he sort of sums this all up here. Um, he says, let all that be put away from you, along with all malice. He, he adds this word. It's every form, every kind of, of evil that could be there, the root of all vices. And, and um, William Hendrickson says, it's an evil inclination of the mind, the perversity of disposition that takes delight in inflicting hurt or injury to fellow men. So all those things are to be what? taken away, put away, take it off, get rid of it, repent of it, have short accounts when those things come up. And these sins often are provoked by a selfishness or thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Okay? So what we need to do is, if we had time, we'd go back and look at Romans 12, the first few verses, is to have a sober self-assessment of who you are and where you are. And really, in the grand scheme of things, you have no rights. You deserve eternal judgment. And and so this whole idea of demanding your rights everywhere you go is something that is foreign according to the Bible. Robert Louis Stevenson tells a story about two unmarried sisters. I've shared this before in Scotland. And they shared a single room together. This is the late 1800s. They had some type of, of offense, and they could not work things out. And so they began, continued to live together, but there were no words, either pleasant or bitter. They just did not speak. There was silence all the time. So they put a chalk line down the center of the room. They coexisted uh, in their two separate domains in a hateful silence. And it's told that each bed they went to sleep while listening to their en- the breathing of their enemy. And so... The sisters continued the rest of their miserable lives. And you say, what foolishness. If I was ever in a situation like that, I wouldn't let it go more than a week or a month or a year or whatever, right? You you say that. But the reality is, brethren, if you think about it, some of you are justifying your bitterness that goes on for weeks and months and possibly even years. We have to be careful. And that's where we have to give that sober sober self-assessment. Assessment, and then search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any anxious ways in me. Think of the various conflicts that you have in your own life. Young people at school, you know, a person at school, the new, new kid shows up and, you know, he's the star of the team now, or whatever the context, you know, and, or your best friend now is best friends with that person, or whatever. Spouses, co-workers becoming unyielding, you know, maybe even within the church, just various conflicts that can take place over, well, hymns or choruses or the color of the pews or whatever. We need more of a realization that we have the Holy Spirit and that he is the divine agent in reconciliation. And so when there are offenses, we need to be quick to deal with those. As we looked at last time, in chapter 4, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Being diligent, that means working hard towards that. Well, finally, and more briefly, verse 32, um, we're going to consider cultivate a compassionate, forgiving spirit. So far, Paul has commanded not to grieve the Holy Spirit because we've been sealed by him forever for an eternal inheritance Then we are to put off manifestations of the flesh. And then now, these are the things that we are to put on. And here is the real gospel motivation. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We are to, when it says be, it's literally become. it's, it's It's a very common word in the Greek, it means bring to an existence, okay? Am I. And so it's be, it's an imperative. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted or become kind to one another and tender-hearted. Putting off all of those sinful um, things and put on the opposite virtues. In fact, we have to put those things off if we are going to put these things on. You can't struggle with everything in verse 31 and then seek to do verse 32. It's not going to work. You've got to cast those things aside first. And he says here to be kind. To be kind is like God. Isn't it amazing several times in the scriptures how it says that God is kind in the Psalms. Even in in Luke, in the context of loving your enemies, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you and your sons the most high for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. It is the richness of his kindness that leads us to repentance, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. So, even in times of trial and difficulties, the solution is not bitterness. The solution is to be kind and, he goes on, tender hearted. Um, literally, in a physical sense, having healthy bowels, but it's figuratively speaking, that's where the seat of the emotions was. So, this is where compassion would come, and, and you would feel that when Jesus comes, it'll the leper, and the, the leper comes to him, rather, and, and he feels compassion. It's down in the pit of his very stomach, as it were. And this is what we are called to be, is hearted, to be compassionate, to be quick to love, pity, and to sorrow our brethren. To be there, to be alongside them. Colossians 3.12, as those who have put on, been chosen by God put on a spirit of compassion. churches would be so much more unified and productive and strengthened if they could put these things into practice. And I think for the most part we excel here. I think there's certainly room for improvement. Um, so don't take this as a browbeating beating by any stretch of the imagination, but these, these are important things to have for, for your home life, for your marriage, for your workplace, and in the church. And then he says, forgiving each other to forgive is to freely and unconditionally give grace, to, as it were, remit a debt, paid in full or cancel the, 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 the debt. It's, it's, it's removed. It's to forgive. It's to extend grace. And the present tense means that we saints should make this a regular practice, a regular practice. Wholeheartedly, generously, eagerly forgiving. And our culture is given to the complete opposite. Revenge, being vindictive, all of that, the means justify sinful anger and, you know, Hollywood and all of that, that's what it's communicating. But that is completely foreign to the Bible. Forgiving each other, this is so important. A bitter person can be resentful and reluctant to grant forgiveness and leads to lack of unity. And we we need to know that. Christ has to be the cornerstone, even in the church, but he's also the third strand that holds a marriage together. And He goes on to say, forgive each other, notice, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That just as speaks to what measure? This measure. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Wow, that's huge, right? But forgiveness brings healing. It liberates the one being forgiven, and the one who is offended um, in the process. Think of Joseph, the prime example of this, in Genesis um, 50, or the chapters 43 to 50, but ending in 50. The brothers want to kill him. They, sell him off as a, they decide to sell him off as a slave instead. A famine comes, the brothers come, and, and Joseph recognizes them and ultimately ends up forgiving them. God meant it for good. So, your supreme motivation, why you should forgive, is because you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven so much, so who are you to hold a grudge and to not forgive? Jay Adams says in his book on forgiveness forgiveness is not some benevolent feeling, it is granted. With it, there is a promise to not bring it up again. In Matthew 18, Jesus addresses this in an extended parable of which I'll summarize for the sake of time. But you have the man, the the slave, that's forgiven this huge debt. The Lord forgives him, a a massive debt, over a million dollars it would be. And then he goes out and he finds his fellow slave and chokes him and he owes him, you know, about 90 days worth of labor, 90 days worth of wages. In other words, just a fraction of what he had been just forgiven Well, word gets out, and the Lord hears about that, and he calls him forward. And this is what he says. Then summoning him, his Lord said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave and in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers. The point of all that is to realize, it's pretty simple to figure out, You've been forgiven a mountain of debt, if you're honest with your own sin. Who are you to go about exacting, I don't care who it is, exacting your rights and demanding from others? We need to be tender-hearted, kind, ready to forgive. We're like that slave every time we refuse to forgive and resort to bitterness and anger. Well, let's conclude just a couple of points as we wrap up today. Our lives should match what we profess to believe. Here, this is a very delicate passage here that speaks of grieving the Holy Spirit of God, and we don't want to do that. True love for the brethren naturally flows from having right doctrine. If we have right doctrine, then we understand these things, what's going to lead to right practice, then these things should be minimal amongst us. There is power in the gospel. There is power to transform areas where you're struggling, whether it's anger, whether it's bitterness, wherever it is, there's power in the gospel to help you to change. The mentality is, I can't stop being angry and bitter. That's the way I am and all of that. How can I ever forgive her is the wrong mentality. That's sin that grieves the spirit. It's a self-justification for your sin, which is even worse. Christ has forgiven so much, and so we need to cry out more love to thee, O Christ. And to the degree that we are expressing our love for him, understanding that all that we have been bestowed upon and the forgiveness of all of our sins, we're going to be quick to bestow that to others and to breathe grace to others. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, there's no way you can honor God um, by doing these things. You might think you're really good at not having resentment and, and anger or whatever, but that's natural for you. And falsehood and rotten words and all of that is—it's more natural for you in your depraved, fallen state. You have no strength to obey God's law. There is no way that you can. Well, God's solution for you is that you would repent and that you would come to Christ, pleading, just as this man did. This as this slave did to his Lord, pleading that your sins would be removed and forgiven. Your heart is wicked. What you need is a new heart, and he will renew that heart. So repent of your sin and come to Jesus. And a final word for Christians, this, this is, these are verses where the rubber meets the road. When you're doing your Bible reading and you come across stuff like this, if you have to read it ten times, read it ten times, it's worth it to not just pass right over it. This, these, are, this, these are things of how we are to live and how we could grow by adhering to these imperatives, by correcting our speech, removing the useless words, and seeking to build up, and refusing to become bitter and, and angry towards one another, but extending love and being tender hearted, being determined to keep short accounts with our great God and with our fellow man. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we do bow before you as those who readily admit that. We still struggle with sin, Lord. You know that. We can't hide that from you. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that dwells on the inside. We thank you for the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would enhance those fruits of the Spirit, that we would be those that glorify you in every aspect. Lord, we pray that you would transform our our interpersonal relationships, be it in the home, be it in the marriage, be it... um, with extended family members, be it in the workplace, the marketplace, or especially in the church, O Lord, that you would strengthen our relationships, that you would preserve our unity, that you would conform us into the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll take your Red Trinity hymnal now and turn to 644. In response to God's word, we'll sing. Let me make sure we didn't change it. We didn't change it, did we? Okay. I heard some practice of some other songs earlier. May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Let's sing to the glory of God.